to A Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. Chesky belts out his love song for the apocalypse, and as he does, he hits every nerve ending in me. He says, I can feel the stomach acid swimming up to the top of my throat, and I think that I know that this bitter taste is in fact just my last bit of hope. The loss of hope horrifies so many of us. It haunts like ghosts in the stories laid at night, in the dark that used to shiver down your spine at sleepaway camp. Or maybe it's more like hope turned sour, rot gut for your soul. But horror only lasts until the sun comes up, and when it rises, you and I were left with the dissonance of the nightmare flickering on in the embers of the campfire that's almost fully banked. In our seventh episode of this season, The Dissonance, we are going to explore what happens when despair and hope battle for the fate of our sanity. I burned. The rage shook through me and shame, anger's disgruntled mail carrier brought it to the surface, leaving the evidence of rage with the stain of humiliation on my cheeks. But <laughs> this is the way I could begin many, many, many of my stories. So let's try again. Let's focus less on me and more on what actually happened. What actually happened was I was standing there in the kitchen and my aunt told me, quite calmly, in a tone that beliled her hatred, or maybe fear, I'm still uncertain as to which, she said to me, Jen, honey, I really hate to say this, but you're following Satan, and you're going straight to hell, unless you repent. Ugh, that muddles it though, doesn't it? It leads with the leads, and it doesn't give you any of the context. It's provocative. Probably unnecessarily so. Let's try again. I know I talk about hell quite a bit. It's an apropos theme of the apocalypse, so don't you think? And I really want you to know and think you should know more about what was actually going on before I ask you to take a side. Because, let's face it, there's still some part of me that thinks she might have had a point that maybe I am, was, will continue to be going straight to hell. Maybe I am, was, continue to be following the adversary. So context. It's Christmas 2009. I'm at a family party. It's filled with people I no longer follow on Facebook. My family history would intrigue you if you were a therapist. Probably less so if you aren't actually invested in the family dynamics of the dysfunctional. Although... Who am I kidding? We are all interested in the dynamics of the dysfunctional. It's why reality TV 
was and is a thing. Context. My father is one of nine living children, and one of eleven if we count the twins who died in either infancy or in the womb. It's never been clear to me, and it really was a significant family secret. Those two potentialities were lost in the annals of history and the cruelty of fate. They never got mentioned when I would recite my father's sibling order like a nursery rhyme. I'd skip them like the secret that could have unlocked the mysteries of trauma. Not just mine, but all of theirs too. I'm the second therapist in my generation, really the second therapist in my larger family, and really the only actively practicing one I know. The only one really invested in the family dynamics of the dysfunctional. And that doesn't actually really matter for this story, except... Of course it does. The ripples of what others got or didn't get in their emotional needs getting met, that always matters. I love my grandparents. Sometimes more in theory than practice. But I wonder to myself, as I take care of my cats and threes about my max for cats, and I'm a pretty loving person, I wonder how could you ever give each of these little creatures children or cats, all that they needed. It seems impossible and incredibly irresponsible. And yet, I I wouldn't wish for any of these people not to be alive. What do you do with that when more people than should have been born are born? Except you would never want to lose those who had been born. And people are so complicated. It seems like with every birth, There should be, I don't know, some note or video that accompanies it with this disclaimer. This disclaimer that proclaims, you will be loved. You will be wounded. So be brave. Life is hard, and really living with joy can be harder still. Trust your heart. Listen to your brain. If you can bear it, search for the secrets your soul offers in your tears and laughter alike. As of yet, though, there is no disclaimer to being born into this world. And if you're being born in 2020 and listening to this far in the future, there was no disclaimer to being born into the apocalypse. Yeah, but context. Back then. Back then, Nick at night taught me that you mostly got a slap on the rump, and the cord was cut on everything that used to sustain you. The world said, welcome, welcome, little one. Now grow the fuck up. That really is a rabbit trail. So let's get back to the family party. This family party was a reoccurring event. It happened every Christmas and there used to be a summer party too. I'm not sure if that even still happens. We're all grown. And so there's less impetus to get us all together. I had been hesitant to attend the family Christmas party in part because I'd left the religion of my childhood long ago. And even though my father was a cradle Catholic, he and the majority of his siblings had found salvation in the late 1970s Jesus movement. The evangelicals' vision of Jesus swept the nation. It offered refuge to those who were scared of real revolution. And instead, they chose the redux of Calvinism. For those of you who are not that theological... (laughs) and or do not understand Calvin. Calvinism is basically the Christian version of astrology. It predicts who and what you are 
and what is destined to happen to you. There's plenty of confirmation bias, most of it affirming your deepest, darkest dreams. Those dreams that say to you, you are better than your neighbor, and that neighbor is profoundly doomed. Unless, of course, through love of your neighbor, you convince them to act like, think like, be like you. It's probably too much theology, though. I just can't help myself, per usual. At the family party, there was shrimp dip and Stouffer's macaroni and cheese, among other things. And there was an agonizing hour-long slideshow of someone's recent trip to India. They were going to save the poor in two weeks or less. Who knows if it was successful or not. And then there was, of course, this scandal that I mostly have imagined in my own mind. I like to pretend that it spread throughout the party, the whispers all over the place. Did you hear what Jen said? Did you hear what she did? But that probably didn't happen. More realistically, I was ignored, as I have been most of my life. At least in that context, I was a quiet cousin in the middle of the birth order. It was never the center, never adored, never pitied, mostly just forgotten. It's a bit melodramatic, though. It's a bit self-centered. And really, me and my own complex of where I fit and if I belong, that's not what today is about. What today is about is the content of that imagined scandal. This time, that scandal was packaged in me attempting to explain my master's thesis to one of my uncles. And in retrospect, that was my first mistake. Or maybe my millionth. So fond of failing. I lose track of the mistakes. I just know they happen with regularity. And I know I've told you before about the importance of reading the Bible literally, but friend, I'm not sure you were really listening. I'm not sure that you could really take it in. It, because it sounds so silly on the surface, we can't read anything literally. Like, that's just not the way life works. Except, except we did. It had to be read literally. It, it's like reading Dr. Seuss and expecting it to be real. It just can't be, except it must. It has to be. Everything else depends on it. If you don't understand the threat, if you don't understand how, if you say, let's say, that the book of Revelation isn't really meant to be read literally. It's a dream. It's a vision. There's plenty of metaphor. There's lots of allegory, very similar to, um, I don't know, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If, if you say that to your family of literalist, of fundamentalist, shit's not going to go well. And I want to explain to you from their perspective or my best guess to their perspective, because I used to live in a similar space is if you say that, well, then how do you determine what is poetic and what is literal? What is the the method for understanding that? What is then the method when Christ said there is a mansion for you in heaven? Is that poetic or is that literal? Is Christ actually an architect and a general contractor working his little heart out in paradise to build you a place? 
And then it gets even more complicated because he doesn't just say there are many mansions in heaven. He says there are many mansions in his father's house. What does that mean? Is God's house a complex? Is it uh, an apartment building? Are these luxury condos? What are mansions in this context? And God forbid we read the NIV and it says rooms and not mansions. What Oh, it's just awful liberal license they're taking. And God, God not only inspired, spoke through, breathed through the original writers of the Bible, he then apparently visited King James in 1611 and King James' posse of biblical translators, to put it in what in retrospect is very beautiful English, that God was there speaking through them just as much. And so whatever words they picked, are God's words, and how dare you accuse God of not saying what he means? Although, he often is saying shit I don't think he means. And who actually knows if he's the one actually talking? But you have to take it literally. And there's no room, there is no room for poetry, there is no room for imagination. It's black and white. It's words on the page, and you must, must, must take them for what they say. Because you see, when you admit that the Bible can't be read 100% literally, you open that gateway. And any number of fallacies or death sentences or just the realization that you've been living your life in a world of just constricted rules that don't actually mean a whole lot to those outside of you, that perhaps actually God may not even exist, that this might all just be a beautiful, complex, tragic projection, as Feuerbach once said. And when you forego literalism, you forego your claim to innocence, which as you and I have already detailed, is just cleverly rebranded ignorance. And it's tricky because there are very many highly, highly intelligent fundamentalists. You may not believe me, so I'm going to say that again. There are very many highly intelligent fundamentalists. To be highly intelligent does not mean that you're curious. One would hope that you might be curious. One might hope that you would be open and and willing to be wrong and to be humble in the face of all the things you do not know. But as far as I can tell, that is not always how intelligence appears. There's plenty of people, both fundamentalist and not, who are so convinced that they know all there is to know, that there's really no arguing with them. And the thing about very highly intelligent fundamentalists is that they subvert their intelligence. It becomes in complete service to maintaining their ignorance. And that's why it makes it so hard to talk to them, to explore, because everything is just so rigid. Even when it seems clear to everyone and their mother that you have a real, solid, pretty good point. Context. Back to the family party. I was standing in the kitchen, in a little triad, my dad 
and an uncle who was an in-law. And in this family dynamics, in-laws are somehow less than full-blood born siblings. But I don't know if that's actually true. It certainly is a complex that some of the in-laws have. And so I'm sitting there in this triad and this uncle was kind of I don't know if he still is cool, but he was kind of the cool uncle. He had a motorcycle. He played drums in a worship band, which was pretty damn exciting when I was younger because you remember drums were off limits. And this uncle had the appearance of openness. This uncle had the appearance of curiosity. I should have known better. There is this way in evangelicalism that you need to convert people. There is a sense that you want to bring as many souls as you can to heaven with you, and there will be much reward. I think initially the idea is more like you're the kid who lives at the really cool house on the block, and your parents are just going to be so delighted with you if you bring lots of friends over, and they're really, they're going to be proud of you and delighted in your relational capacity. But then you're trying to convince all your friends to come over to the really cool house by telling them that their parents are destined to go to hell and they too are destined to go to hell. And let me show you what hell is. And let me tell you all the reasons you are a terrible, awful, horrific person. But don't worry, just come over to my folks' house and it's awesome and you'll be safe forever. I don't know if that makes sense, but the idea is you want to bring as many souls to heaven as possible. And one of the tacks is to be very direct, to just tell somebody they're going to hell and here's the solution. It's very easy. Just ask Jesus into your heart and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you're safe. However, I'm sure for those of you who have done any sales and marketing, you know that does not always work. Persuasion requires more. And so this uncle, he was a good persuasive convincer and saver of souls. He was able to use a subverted way of the Socratic method of walking you into a corner. And so you agreed with him and you felt delighted to agree with him until you were many steps away and thought, huh, that just doesn't feel true to me. I, I don't know that I actually agree. It just felt right to agree in the moment. So I'm standing with him, standing with my father, and I am doing most of the talking. The uncle asks the occasional question, but I'm doing most of the talking and I'm explaining that I am writing my thesis on the woman city in the book of Revelation, who is called Babylon, to which my uncle responds, oh, you mean the whore? Well... Yes, yes, that is what she's often called. However, she's called that by her enemies. Well, but, but Jen, we are her enemies. She's trying to subvert the nations of God. Well, perhaps, but it's important to look at this text in context of who may have been writing it. And even if we agree, and I'm willing to agree with you, that God inspired this text and inspired the writer, and it's it's the writer's words or God's words through the writer, we do also want to keep in mind that the writer is using the context, the context in which he lived to create uh, not just a long-term spiritual vision of what may happen in the future, but also he has created this creature that represents likely the, the empire of Rome and how Rome has persecuted the chosen, the, the children of God. 
Well, yes, but but the book of Revelation is about the future. Perhaps it's certainly framed as a prophecy. (sighs) He couldn't hear me. And I'm probably not doing him credit either, that I'm sure he was smoother than I'm painting him to be. But it was the circular conversation. Whatever I said was countered. Whatever I proposed was shot down. Subtly. Smoothly. The whole time my father was silent. I I kept getting tangled up. And I think you know by now I'm quite bright. I had read this text from the original Greek. I hadn't just read it from the original Greek. I translated it from the original Greek. I spent hours and hours making sense of it. I read many books from a wide variety of perspectives. I I did something really beautiful with that text. I wanted to explain that to translate what I was doing, but I also really wanted to avoid any obvious landmines. And my uncle couldn't hear me. It was just like saying something in a foreign language over and over and over again to him. And my dad was standing by, and though he was silent, I I really truly don't know what was going on for him. Whether he would have defended me or had my back if he had had the words or the spine himself. My cynical side thinks he may have liked to watch me squirm. That he might have found some pleasure, not in necessarily seeing me in distress, but not being the one who had to be combative, not being the one who was in conflict, but perhaps longing to be able to be in conflict with others, to stand up for himself, to push in ways that he had never been able to. And really, even though I was not making a lot of headway in what I wanted to explain, I was successfully dodging disaster. I was avoiding the landmines. I knew where they were. I conceded as I needed to. And it was going, I don't know, relatively well until my aunt came up. She's one of the sisters nearest to my father in age, not married to this uncle who was the in law. And at that time, I seem to remember that she was very afraid of her eldest child being partnered with a non-believer. I don't actually know if that was even true, but that is the story I remember. And over the years, she's somebody I have come to pity more, more than I ever would have thought possible. Certainly not then, not in her kitchen, as we all stood around talking about Babylon. And I want to be clear Pity, pity is not a great emotion to have for another. There is a sense of being condescending, of looking down, feeling like you are better than the other. It's something I work on in therapy. When can my pity be translated into compassion? I don't know. Someday I'll get there. So continued to talk, I continued to spin, I continued to fairly successfully dodge the landmines of fundamentalism and rigidity and literalism. And as she listened, 
as soon as she heard that I was not going to interpret the Bible literally, both in this conversation and in my thesis. She noted, she noted that somehow the men around me had not corrected me. They had not schooled me in the truth. And I imagined she must have felt deep within her that she needed to save me if no one else would. For her, it wasn't about inviting friends over to hang out in your really cool divine father's house, mansion, apartment complex. For her, it was like a child running into the street and she had the ability to snatch them back to her to keep them safe. And so while I was explaining what I maintain is the rhetorical genius of the writer of Revelation, who is called John of Patmos, but I like to think of him as John the Dreamer. And as I'm talking about this, she interrupted me. Her eyes were fierce on mine, although her voice remained calm and steady. Jen, honey, I hate to say this, but you're following Satan, and you're going straight to hell unless you repent. Ugh. Felt the condemnation, and I took it in. I held it within myself. And I felt the anger, not only at her, but at myself. For every time I'd ever said those words to another, typically to strangers, but also in coded ways to my history professor and many friends along the way. The dissonance rang in me. It wasn't as strong as when I thought Bin Laden's eyes were kind, but while it rang, it it didn't frighten me as strongly as when I was five seeing hell for the first time in my imagination, but it rang in a different intonation. And I, I felt the condemnation. And in that moment, a million things happened at once. I became, in the core of me, aware that I wasn't headed to hell. I was there now. And the dissonance rang and tinnitus tuning out whatever my aunt followed up with. I saw her speaking, but I did not hear one word after. My world has been so bleak. We grew up cloistered in the dark, unable to see anyone, only able to feel the racing terror of our own hearts, only able to imagine what the world looked like outside of our self-imposed cages. Shame had eaten me alive for as long as I could remember, and long before my aunt coolly pointed out that I was following Satan and going straight to hell, I had burned there. Hell had burned in me for so long that I just assumed that was what living was like. And in her concern, tangled and mixed up as it is, and was, and in my father's silence, unknown, provoking, and in my uncle's smirk, I found kindness under the flames. Not their kindness. They were too love-starved to have much to offer. No, I found kindness in finally allowing myself to feel the flames of hell in my soul. Flames that were always there, only banked when I poured all of my energy into defending against and containing them. And let me tell you, It was a pleasure to burn. And as I burned, I realized 
I can leave. I don't, I don't have to stay here for this. I don't have to be condemned. I can choose different. It hummed in me a kind of chant that felt surprisingly cheerful. I can leave. Leave this interaction in the freedom that I have bought for myself in the form of a little red car. I can leave behind the dysfunction. I can leave it in this large, cluttered house holding the majority of my blood. Leave my faith on the table next to my plate of uneaten food. I can leave hellfire and damnation and the destruction of the paper cuts of a thousand words and then some. And that first time that I gave myself permission to leave hell, I burned like a star in a galaxy far, far away. And the hope whispered through me, and the pleasure of freedom shot through my system, igniting my heart, flushing my entire being with a thousand pinpricks of joy. I told my mother I was going. I walked out of that house, my car keys jingling in my hand. The hum of that new song sang over and over again in my heart. I can leave hell. I can leave hell. I can leave hell. I don't have to stay. As all of the great epiphanies I've ever had, that stunning moment of clarity didn't last very long. Because while I could leave hell, hell has never quite left me. I told you a while ago that the unraveling of your childhood trauma doesn't happen overnight. And for me, the cognitive dissonance of having left hell and still having hell within me plucks a chord that's really hard for me to make sense of. Actually, it's interesting. Um, my Old Testament professor from Divinity School reached out just to give me some kudos this past week, which was so nice and so oh, really. Uh, I'm making a gesture that my clients do very well with hand over my heart, a little like, oh, holding my heart, feeling warm and feeling tender. So this professor reached out to me and gave me kudos. And as I was getting ready to record this, I was thinking about an old rabbinic saying that he used to share with us about the Tanakh, which is just an anagram for the three components of the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. And that old rabbinic saying was that the Torah was like a jewel or like a prism, and you turn and you turn and you turn it, and each time you turn it, a new light shines over the text. And for me, that is what apocalypse, what hell feels like, something for me to turn and turn and turn, and there's a new light on the text of my life, of who I am. And yet, I was born and bred a fundamentalist, I was born and bred a literalist, and to hold multiple interpretations of the same thing clangs in me. I want there to be a truth, a one right answer. And cognitive dissonance, that's the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions or attitude change. I didn't make that definition up. I googled it. I don't know who made it up. You can google it too. But cognitive dissonance, it it tastes like 
your favorite dish that's missing one component, like just one important piece. It's like smelling the garbage, but the garbage has been taken out and you can't figure out where that smell comes from. It feels like there is a war inside of you tugging back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you're not sure which way to go. It actually feels like my husband has this, I don't know what to call it. I guess it's like a massage gun. I'm sure they have a real name. And my neck was very stiff the other day. And he's like, oh, just use this massage gun. You just hold it here. You're so tight. I said, oh, okay, I'll try that. But it was right at the base of my skull. And so if I'd stayed on my neck, it was okay. It was sort of weird. I could feel the vibration. But the further up my neck I went, the closer to the base of my skull, it it shook my brain so much. I'm pretty sure it gave me a migraine later that day. It was so bizarre to be shaken, 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 shaken. And that is actually what cognitive dissonance feels like. That you're shaken in a way that you've never been shaken before. You can't find your grounding. And there's a difference then between cognitive dissonance and a paradox in your soul, although they feel kind of like the same goddamn thing. Cognitive dissonance is often occurring when there's something we do not want to believe is true. We hold a truth that feels like it should have priority, and any other truth that works to negate it disorients us and sometimes destroys us. We need the truth to be the truth, except sometimes the truth is not the truth, or the truth is not capital T truth, the only truth. It is a part of the truth. And when we can understand that it's pretty rare for us to find the capital T truth because we are really just one tiny little human and one tiny little human can't know all the things and can't even always know the capital T truth, if there even is one. If we can hold that, we can hold within us that there are many opposites, that there are many polarities that we are on both ends of the spectrum. That just because we feel more comfortable in a certain arena or with a certain set of truths or beliefs or even behaviors, it doesn't mean that the opposite cannot also be true for us. I think about this often when I sit with clients who are really wrestling with a lot of shame, and the shame feels very true to them. The shame tells them some really important, significant things. Uh, A client recently, we were talking and they said to me, well, sometimes the evil little ego gremlin tells me this. And I, I love the idea of like a little evil ego gremlin demon, like speaking. I kind of think of like an evil version of Dobby from Harry Potter. I don't know if that's what gremlins look like, but the idea that evil ego gremlin was saying something to her was significant. I actually responded. I was like, I don't know. I kind of think the little ego gremlin might have a point about that. Like that's something worth checking out with me. That there is still truth in these like really horrific things that we say, believe, or tell ourselves, but they're not the whole truth, right? For me, sometimes my shame comes up and I will wake up in the morning and just be drenched with this fear that, am I a good person? I don't know. I Am I a bad person? Am I a bad person? Am I a bad person? Am I a good person? A good person? A good person? And those are just polarities. 
Yes, I am a good person. Yes, I am a bad person. I hold both within me. What matters is who do I choose to be? How will I go out and be in the world today? The good is not a permanent construct that you are either good or bad. Bam, you're done. You're not once saved, always saved, which was the mantra that soothed me growing up. You you earn your salvation. I'm getting a little close to Calvinism, you guys. You, you work it out. You find ways to, to be you, whoever the you is. And I don't know who you are. I'm always curious about it and would love for you to send me an email and tell me who you are so I could get to know you. Maybe we can have virtual coffee, except I'm not going to have coffee. I would have tea. Context, back to the point. Often when we are struggling to hold the opposites together, we are really committed to like staying with our one true truth about ourselves or others. We often disassociate from reality. And we do that in a myriad of ways. We find ways to take ourselves apart. We find ways to to just pretend that things are not the way they are. And we could talk more about disassociation and why it happens, but we're running out of time. So you'll have to come back, not to next week's episode, but to some episode in the future where we can dive deeper. Really what I'm wanting to say is however you disassociate, it's important to tune yourself back in. In the story I just told you, I disassociated and I went to actually a really beautiful place in discovering I don't need to stay here. And disassociation can often help us realize that we do not have to stay in the trauma of rigidity or the trauma of what has happened to us or what we have even done to ourselves that we can go. But in order to go, we have to wake up to the reality of the moment so we can choose to walk away. And ultimately, you can choose to walk away from aunts who tell you that you're going straight to hell and following Satan or whoever, whatever that might be. But you cannot walk away from the experience that lives inside of you. And in the reverberation of the paradoxes that you carry inside, which are likely, almost conclusively, very different than the paradoxes I hold inside. You have to be awake to them. You have to, even if you can just acknowledge that they exist, that is the first step. An interesting episode, you all. I'm grateful that you came on this journey. I'm sure we're not done talking about hell. And as I'm thinking about the story I told you today and the thoughts that are reverberating in me, I'm thinking about how I didn't know it then, back in 2009, but I was really trying to figure out how to write a love song to the apocalypse. I was trying to wake the dead. I was trying to fix not everything, but everyone. But that's just a dream. And underneath the dream is the reality of the real paradox that I'm still trying to make sense of inside of me and inside of you too. And that paradox is the enemy and the hero coexist 
within all of us. And as always, I leave you with the call of the apocalypse. It urges us, wake up or burn. Or maybe, maybe I've been mishearing it all along. Maybe the call is actually, wake up, burn. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.